Well, dear friends, may I direct your prayerful attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We arrive this evening in the latter part of verse 6 of this chapter. I read from the first part of verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4, where the apostle says, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Paul, again, is touching on this serious problem that was going on at Corinth. It's a problem, not only was it Corinth, but it's pervasive throughout all the churches. It's in our lives. We think of men far higher than we ought to. And we do not give God the credit and the glory where it is due. Of course, all glory and credit is to God for anything in our lives. Anything good is from above, from the Father of lights. In us dwelleth no good thing. The Corinthians prided themselves upon their teachers. They prided themselves on the apparent success of the church. And this was leading to, sadly, a terrible party spirit because man was getting the praise for it. Where it was God, through the Apostle Paul, as he planted, God gave the increase. And as Apollos watered, as he, Apollos, one of the teachers, who is with Paul now, by the way, at Philippi, we know this from 1 Corinthians 16, that Apollos is with Paul, And uh, Paulus doesn't want to visit at this time. It's not the right time for him to go back. But there are problems. It has been reported to Paul, not only by Apollos, by by the delegation of men that were sent from Corinth, that there was this party spirit in the church, that there were these various factions, because men were boasting in men. Men were thinking far too highly of themselves. And they'd forgotten that not... By the wisdom of this world did men know God, but it was by the power, by the instrumentality of God, that men were brought to light in Jesus Christ. By nature, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We will not see, we do not want to see, especially our sin, and by nature we do not believe the gospel. We reject it, and we hold all manner of truth down as we suppress it in unrighteousness. We know even the natural order of things, creation, the natural mind suppresses God, doesn't he? And the truth of God, that God has created all things, because we do not want to be accountable. At Corinth, there were many teachers there, and some were of a worldly kind. Some were introducing philosophies and uh, worldly teachings to try to build a church. But it is God that builds the church, first of all, by the quickening of his spirit and by the faithful preaching of the word. Natural man, we are told, at the end of chapter 2, does not receive, verse 14, the things of the Spirit of God. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. And so on he goes to say. These early believers here at Corinth are behaving in a carnal way. Verse 3 of chapter 3, For ye are yet carnal, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are ye not carnal and walk as men? One saith, I am of Paul, another of Apollos. Are ye not carnal? Again, he's repeating this theme. I trust you've seen it in every chapter so far, that this boasting really is causing the church not only to be argumentative one with another, but also they're coming away from the true gospel and that salvation is by grace alone, by the quickening of the Spirit of God and by faith which God gives a man so that he may receive the things of Christ. We receive the truths by faith and Christ is the object of that faith. He's given us a new heart to believe. God has planted through the Apostle Paul that seed and then the watering by Apollos and Cepha or anyone else that preached there, God has blessed it. So Paul is dealing with this great pride in this church and he repeats it here in this chapter that you ought not to think more than men, more of men than you ought to. As we've said before, three things that were going on at the church at Corinth, pride, pragmatism, always goes with it, pride and pragmatism, and worldly, pernicious doctrine. You'll have to deal with the resurrection, even, at the close of this epistle. All of these things have crept into the church. When we depart from the truth, we succumb to pride. Remember, it's God that makes you to differ. We'll see that this evening. If we take our eyes off that we'll resort to pragmatism. We'll think we need to invent ways to save people. Of course, we can't save anybody. Neither can we build anybody up in their most holy faith. We must preach the word. We don't uh, do anything else but preach the word. It's by the word preached that men are sanctified and brought into closer union with Christ. And that will keep us from pernicious doctrine. Let us not go, as we'll see tonight, beyond what is written. We must never go what is beyond what is written. Now, this evening, as we come to these verses, let us just remember these men were so self-confident in men, but not in the work of the Holy Spirit. And last time, remember, we saw in verses 1 to 6, or 6a, let no man account, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Two important Greek words used there. The word minister, we said, is the word under rower. You can imagine a man rowing down at the bottom of a great big ship, a great galleon. Under rower, that's the word in the Greek. And then stewards, it gives the idea of a servant that has great responsibility over a great master's possession. And God has given us the possession of his word. Paul was following, as was Apollos, the instructions of the Lord Jesus. Laboring as a minister of God is a back-breaking job. And sometimes it can be a very thankless job. 
especially where you've got people, I'm not saying anybody here, but where you've got people who want to resort to pragmatism. Pastor, let's do it this way. What we'll learn when Paul says, I'm all things to all men, he doesn't mean you go and be a drunk uh, to save the drunk. No, we will see what that really means. People have really perverted such scriptures. Or you don't uh, go and hang out at the pubs to uh, get people, it's not a good witness. There's lots of ways in which people have abused those texts. Well, we are the ministers of Christ. When Christ says robe, when he says fight as a good soldier, as a minister, well, we have no option but to obey the master's orders. And we must remember that we are in possession of the greatest treasure in all the world. What is the greatest treasure in all the world? It's the word of God. The psalmist said, it is more precious to me than gold or silver, any fine thing. And what is required of us, verse 2, is that a minister be found faithful. And then secondly, we saw how any church or church minister, how they are to judge the minister or consider the minister and how even the minister is to consider himself. He understands that in the final analysis, God will be his judge. God will reveal the secrets of men. Why did we do things? What was our motive? Was our heart really trusting in the Lord? Were we ultimately being faithful to the master, the Lord Jesus Christ? We saw that in verses 3 and 4. He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you. He's not saying it's not important, as we said, remember. He's not dismissing their judgment. It's right that a church make judgments. And even Paul says, even I, I don't judge my own self, the end of verse 3b, but this I know he that judges me, end of verse 4, is the Lord. And Paul has to minister with that realization that there is coming a great day when he will stand before the mighty bar of Christ and give an account of his stewardship. And this is why, thirdly, we saw last time the Apostle Paul and the church there at Corinth and every other church needs to work out their salvation, their life, their ministry, and everything else with, in view, the great reckoning of that day when we will stand before Christ. In view of all eternity, that's what's before us. It's a short life we live, but you know, what we do now counts, and the way we do it now is so important. Is our faith in Christ, who said, I will build my church. It's not the minister, it's not the pastor, it's not even the church members. It's the Lord, we read in Acts chapter 2, who added to the church daily, and the authorized version says, such as should be saved. Such as should be saved. Sadly, the modern text don't have that. It's one of the corruptions of the modern text. It's the Lord who has a people, and he adds, sadly, there are many in the professing church who really aren't the Lord's sheep. But the Lord has his sheep, 
And uh, if the Lord does not build, we labor in vain, says the psalmist. They labor in vain. Except the Lord build a house or the temple, they that labor, labor in vain. So the Lord must build. Now, again, it reminds us, doesn't it, when we think of these verses, everything I do as a minister and everything you do, the end of verse 5 there, God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, even the things of your life, my friend, our prayers, anything we do in the church. It reminds us, you know, Matthew chapter 6, there on the Sermon on the Mount, Lord Jesus raises three specific areas of our lives where people, even in a religious context, can be duplicitous. Think for a moment of the Pharisees. You remember how it says, don't be like them. The Lord Jesus says, moreover, take heed that you do your arms Take heed that you do not your arms before men to be seen of them. You know, you don't even give. Let, he goes on to say, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Because if you do that, he says, you have no reward. You have your reward now. You have the praise of men, but you won't have a reward. You're trying to please, you're trying to impress people, but you don't impress God. God only values really what you do for him and for his praise. Be very careful that you don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen of them. And then he moves to the area of prayer. He says, moreover, doesn't he? He says, when you, when you pray, don't be as the Pharisees who, uh, when they pray, they do their morning devotions on the street corners. Imagine that. And to, why? To be seen of men. But when you pray, Go into your closet, pray to your Father which is in heaven. Then you will have your reward. It's a sincere religion. Religion is before God and uh, seeking to please him. And moreover, when you fast, you know, we must even tell anybody when we fast. And it's assumed that we fast. Moreover, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, don't tell people. The Pharisees, well, they ashen their face. They disfigure their faces, that they may appear, it says there, Matthew six sixteen, to fast. But they weren't really fasting. You see how deceitful and duplicitous the human heart can be. It's a terrible thing. Let us never tell people how much we pray. I've had people even write to me, tell me how much they pray, how much they fast, how much they give. It's all wrong. And the Lord will not honor such a thing. But anyway, coming back to the minister and the ministry, he must remember that his reward is from God. And he will have to give an account. The day shall reveal it, we read. Now, it will be a day, a shocking day, will it not? When so many who perhaps wrongly disregarded one man's ministry... They will hear the Lord praise that faithful man or that faithful servant doing this or that, whatever you did for me. Remember, whatever you did for the least of these, you weren't seeking the praise of men, you did it for me. What a day that will be. 
I was reminded of Samuel Rutherford, who seemed to have such little fruit in his ministry. And yet, as was his prayer, that if he could just see one soul in glory, that it would be two heavens for him. If he could just see one soul saved, it would be two heavens for him. Well, I suppose our heart must be concerned for the glory of God. Now, notice with me as we pick up verse 6b, he says, And these things, brethren, he says, notice there, I'll read from verse 6a, the first part, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Now there are other people there at Corinth, as I've already said. The Apostle Paul, when he writes this epistle, you notice in chapter 16, he tells us that Apollos isn't ready to go back and see the church. Apollos is with him. Chapter 16, verse 12, as touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren. That's the brethren he's sending them back with now. But his will was not at all to come at this time. It's a difficult time in the church. For whatever reason, Apostle Paul tells us that Apollos is not prepared to come. Well, he says he uses Apollos' name here and Paul for their sakes. He says, I've transferred in a figure to myself. In other words, he could have used other men as an example, but he didn't want to shame them. There were other teachers there. Imagine this, if the teachers built up a factious party one against the other. It would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? It would be a horrible spirit to see. And that's not right. That's not charitable. That's not Christian love. He says, think on this. Why? So that you don't be puffed up. Imagine ministers being puffed up against each other. Let alone a, a church. It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? If such was the case. Now, he mentioned by way of contrast in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 5, who then is Paul? He's already, who, and who is Apollos? He has been using Apollos and him, if, if you could contrast the two. Neither are anything. We're nothing. We're nobodies, really. Who was Paul? Once Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. Wisdom didn't come from Paul, but God gave him wisdom. He had to spend three years in Arabia, we, we read. He had to relearn all of his learning, didn't he? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews. Oh, the Lord had to teach him. What we see here, now in verse six to, 6b to verse 9, are three of the most delightful things that they ought to consider. They were comparing men. But now they must think on certain things. Firstly, they must think on the word of God. Notice that ye might learn, he's used Paul and Apollos as a, as a figure to them. Why? That ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Written in the philosopher's books? No. Written in the Bible. Don't go beyond God's word. He refers them to God's infallible, inerrant word. 
Don't go beyond what God's word says about men. Men are nothing. What is, what is man? We're told in the Psalms, at his best state, Psalm 39 verse 5, man is altogether vanity. He's empty. What did David say? I'm but a worm. Job said, I'm a worm. Paul himself said to the Romans, in chapter 7, in me dwelleth no good thing. Don't go beyond what is written. So that's the first thing we'll see. And then secondly, we'll see the grace of God given to every child of God. That's what they ought to think of. Don't go beyond what's written of man, but consider the grace of God. What does he say? Who makes you to differ? Grace. God, the God of grace, makes you and I to differ from other men, even in the church. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us, says the Apostle Paul earlier. That's what makes us to differ. We don't, even as church officers, we don't puff up ourselves against each other or anybody in the church. It's entirely the grace of God. You can read all about that in Romans chapter 12. Let no man think above himself more than he ought to, but according to the grace given him. And then thirdly, we'll see that all Christians are God's kings, God's kings who should reign with Christ even now. They say they're reigning, but they're reigning without Paul. We'll see that tonight. They're reigning. They're boasting. They're saying we're reigning. They're saying we're well. But actually, what the church are doing with this factious or dividing spirit is they are dividing the body, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of this one. No, God has used different men to establish this church. And we reign together. We will read from Revelation chapter 1 that Christ has ascended and made us kings now and priests to reign. And we are, the church reigns now with Christ, as we'll think. We were thinking in our studies recently through the book of the Revelation. This, now, where is Christ? In heaven. And we'll read in Corinthians that he must reign even until he puts all enemies under his feet. And then the end shall come. We are in that glorious reign now. Paul will tell us in Romans 5 that Christ lives in us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. The Spirit of Christ now is in us. And we are more than conquerors. But we are kings and priests, even now, Christ reigning in us. Now, he says in verse 8, now ye are full, now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. That's wrong. You're saying you're reigning without us? No, that was never God's design. God's people are a unit. They're an organism. The church is a living organism where God provides every member of the body. You see, the Corinthians, by their language, were claiming to be reigning triumphant even over their sin. But Paul will point out in the very next chapter that they're not actually dealing with sin. 
There's an atrocious sin that is being tolerated in the church. And rather than being ashamed, they were proud. And that ought not to be the case. So first of all, the word. Notice what he says, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Again, what he is referring to here is not what is written about men in other books, but what God has said, what God has declared. Man at his very best is but vapor. Now you notice many times he's already said, if you just notice, he's used this expression, it is written. Paul is basing all of his authority, not only as an apostle, but what has already been declared in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.19, notice there, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. It's written, you Corinthians, I'm addressing you on the authority and the veracity of God's word, what God has already declared. You are boasting in men, but God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Did men find out God from the world? Can they, by their own books, by their own, they can't. Did anybody ever really, although it is even in the scriptures, even the hidden things, the mystery of the gospel was hidden for so long, and yet God revealed it. It just showed it, didn't it, the blindness of men. Although we see so clearly now as we look back in the Old Testament, we, we can see all the types and the shadows and the promises of concerning Christ. But then finally the revelation is there. But God had to give it to us. We'd have been as blind as them had Christ had not come. Again in 1 Corinthians 1.31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. They boasted in their teachers. They boasted in their wisdom. But you know, it is written, says God. According as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. They were glorying in themselves rather than God who revealed everything to them and has shown them and has given them light and has given them a new heart. Where praise was being given to men, not to God. And this was sad, sad at Corinth. What he's doing there in 1 Corinthians one thirty-one is he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glory glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. My friends, that's the only thing to glory in. Really, that you say you know God by the grace of God, and you glory in him. Then again, he mentions this, it is written, 1 Corinthians 2, 8. And uh, it's on the back foot of uh, the princes of this world, which one none of the princes of this world knew, for had they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written. You see, again, he's emphasizing God has said it. And then what does he say? Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now we, we often take that verse, don't we? And we say, nobody's ever seen, eye hasn't, and it's true, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard what God has prepared. 
But really, that comes on the back foot of us knowing nothing. We didn't know this except God tells us and declared it. It's been written. Who would have imagined that? And so man at his very best state is is foolish. He's not good. He's not wise. And as Jeremiah says, cursed be the man that trusteth in man. Jeremiah 17 verse 5. So it is. Don't go beyond that which is written about man, you Corinthians. Now, we can apply that to ourselves as Christians in the church and in your life. Do you frame your thinking about yourself and about others according to God's word? Men, don't ever be impressed with men. And ladies, never be impressed with men. You know, the heart is deceitful. And others may easily impress us. Over the years I've learned, and I continue to learn, that there is not a just man in all the earth. All are sinners. All come short of the glory of God. And even the finest that preaches is a sinner at best. A sinner at best. A worm. A vile wretch. Heard a story once about a man that I think was St. Martin Lloyd-Jones near his end. And the man kept peering round through the hospital door. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. That's all we are, isn't it? Just a man. Let's not think any more of men than we ought. Let us not be respecters. Let us beware of our propensity even to be desired of others and have the approval of others. We should not. We should seek the approval of one that is our Lord and our Master. Proverbs 2, 1, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding. You see, it's, it's in the word of God that we get wisdom, that we get understanding, that we get peace, that we get anything. The world and even ourselves don't make sense apart from God's word. We see everything. We see man is, is weak. Well, it was the same for the Laodiceans. Look at the Corinthians there. He says, you're rich. He's, uh, of course, using hyperbole here. Almost a sense of sarcasm, but I don't like that word. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is. They thought they were rich. They thought they were doing well. They, they really did. But he's saying no. Even as the church at Laodicea had said, because thou sayest I'm rich, and so on, but they weren't. Well, without Christ, we're nothing. You know, it's Christ who is our life, our wisdom, our sanctification, our righteousness, our redemption, our all. That if any man glory, Paul will tell the Corinthians, let him glory in the Lord. Now you notice, here, as we move on to the second 
as we think concerning this church, the grace given to every child of God. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Who has made you? God, who is wisdom, has made you to differ. God, who has given you everything freely to enjoy, has made you to differ. So then why do you glory? Why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it, as if it came from you to begin with? Which you have. You Corinthians, you were just part of the Gentile world, many of them, many of them Jews too. Why do you glory now? Well, no glorying in man is there. And here we have unmistakably God's distinguishing sovereign grace is set forth, isn't it? It's what makes a man to differ from another. And those of us who are saved, you know, nobody in the church ever ought to look down in pride upon others. It's God that has changed us. It's God that has shed the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in our hearts. It's God that quickened us. It's God that gave us faith. It's God that regenerated us even. Go right to the beginning. It's God that chose us even before the world began and gave us grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. God who cannot lie. God who by covenant and by love gave us to his son. Nothing else. We can lay claim to nothing else but the grace of God. The distinguishing sovereign grace of God. And they ought to reflect upon that. I think today that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is it in many a church and in many a heart. And even in our hearts, even if we, we know this truth. But how often do we actually reflect upon it? I know we all know it. But how much do we imbibe it? How much do we live out of that truth? And thankfulness. Does it produce humility and gratitude? It ought to. The grace of God doesn't puff up a man. Like the Corinthian church, they've taken their eyes off the grace of God. But it lifts up a man, doesn't it? Well, it makes us to realize we're nothing. We brought nothing. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We only came with our sin. God deals with our sin in Christ. And then notice lastly, thirdly, all Christians are God's kings who should reign with Christ over sin, the devil and the world. But they will reign together. They don't reign individually and say, I don't need you. Or I boast in this one or that one. The church, as I said, is one body. Purchased by Jesus Christ and every member in that church has its place, has its function. I want you to notice we're speaking about reigning. If you turn to Revelation 1.5, you notice what uh, we read when John, by the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, was on the island of Patmos. And uh, all of these things are being shown to him. And there he is on the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, 
and the prince of the kings of the earth. Now notice this. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And then, what do we read as we, we move on in that chapter? And as what? Made us kings and priests forever. This same Lord has been so gracious to us. Verse 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God. Kings even now. And his father, to him be glory. Not to us. In what way we speak of the priesthood of all believers. We speak of the kingship of all believers. There's a sense in which we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. It's not as if we're earthly priests as such, ministering in some strange way. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, by the tender mercies of God that you offer up yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God, and we serve him. The priest would have on his fair mitre holiness to the Lord, and that's every Christian. Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's the sense that priesthood is now. And that kingship now, what does that kingship represent? Reigning over sin. Let me show you. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 5. You notice in verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. By one. That's even now. And if you don't see that clearly, you move on to the end of this chapter. Verse 21. As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. That Greek word there, reign, bastilio, is what a king would do. He would reign over his enemies. Sin remains, but it doesn't reign. In the believer. It's there. But it's not the dominant feature. Why? Because the spirit of God. Is now in the Christian. And he mortifies sin. If you just move to Romans 6. This is why the apostle says in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. If If you're a saved Christian. And. You know the grace of the Lord. Do you sin more? The grace may abound. He says, God forbid. Meganoita. May it never be. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ. Now there you have it. This blows out the water. Infant baptism. Doesn't it? Paul tells us in Galatians 3.27, whosoever has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. And here he says, know you not, so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. So why? 
We were buried with him by baptism into death. Baptism is a picture of the fact that the old person has died. And then, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. There's a new life there. Why? Notice, for if we have been planted together, Romans 6, verse 5, in the likeness of his death, so shall we also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And you notice, come down to the verse 14 of chapter 6, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, to be under the law is to be under the dominion of sin. To be under grace is to have the Spirit of God now ruling with us. We reign with Christ in that sense. He has gone up on high. But notice with me, uh, if this is still not clear to you, I turn you to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek that you're risen with Christ, you're born again, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above. He says you've been risen with Christ. Christ, where is he? Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand. He's accomplished his work. He reigns as prophet, priest, and king. And we reign with him. That's why we have been seeing in Revelation recently, haven't we? Now Christ is raised for his people. And uh, again, if you just turn to the end of this epistle itself, the end of this epistle with the Apostle Paul, uh, he says the following, verse 20. Chapter 15, sorry, verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order... Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, so he reigns now, and all authority and power. Now notice, for he must reign. Christ reigns now, until he hath put all enemies under his feet. That's the fulfillment, isn't it, of Psalm 110. And Paul tells us in Colossians, we reign with Christ now. We reign, and he reigns in our hearts. And they are saying, this church at Corinth is saying, or Paul is saying, you're kings, you reign. But you reign without us. You're excluding us. The body, the church is one unit. Don't break it up. Stop this factious spirit Give God the glory. It is simple, I believe. 
but often we can have a division. And that ought to never be the case. We ought to thank the Lord for every single true believer and rejoice in the grace of God in him. And that grace also in our lives. But what does it look like? It puts away sin, doesn't it? Grace reigns. Why? Romans 6. To mortify. So that there's no boasting. There's no pride. There's just thanks to God. You see something in somebody that's praiseworthy. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord he builds this church. Thank the Lord he builds every believer up. The church is precious to Jesus Christ. We ought not to forget that. Over the years I've been a Christian, I've heard criticisms like this. Well, I've read 1 Corinthians, they say. And I've seen what can go on in the church. I've seen the divisions, and maybe they've seen a church and it's a trouble. Well, God saves sinners, doesn't he? Not angels. And the sinners will receive the admonition. The Corinthians did. They corrected this man in the next chapter so that he had godly sorrow. We must never use the excuse, and it's a pitiful and a shameful excuse, that the church has sin. So I'll have nothing to do with it. Well, the Lord Jesus, you think about it. For three years, he was with those complaining, grumbling disciples. How long-suffering. How kind, how gracious he was, and how he laid down his life for them, so that he might die for their sins, and that eventually his spirit would come on that day of Pentecost and breathe an almighty wind, so that the church might grow and expand, that many hearts would be converted, that Peter would be changed. Look at Peter. Look how he began. Look at him in the end. Bold. Look at Paul. Saul of Tarsus. Look at the others. Look at, you'd never think, James, John, the sons of Zebedee, and then humble John. From wanting to be, as it were, with his brother on the one side of the Lord and then wanting to be in the bosom of Christ. Vast difference, isn't that? The Lord does humble us and it's in the church where Christ feeds. We read in the Song of Solomon, he feeds amongst the lilies. The lilies are his people and they long for that pureness in the life and they forbear with one another. They forgive one another. And they grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And they learn by and by not to boast, not to have confidence in man, not to go beyond what is written, 
but to follow what is written. To have a right apprehension of ourselves and God by what is written. This is what he says. Don't go beyond what is written. Consider who has made you to differ, child of God, tonight. Forbear with one another. Forbear with those who are young in the faith. And even those who are over in the Lord, submit to them, but only in the Lord. And let us love and admonish one another and encourage one another all the more. Amen.